Michael, we can't really talk about fashion without discussing the industry's environmental impact, which is why we're excited to dive into the new vapor wash technology from AG Jeans. This is one of the most environmentally friendly wash processes to date, using 65% less water and chemicals than traditional practices. AG Jeans uses electromechanical shock to convert a mixture of water and wash solution to create nanobubbles, which results in zero discharge. They have also done away with sandblasting along with harsh bleaching chemicals in favor of eco-friendly laser processing. It's safer for workers and better for the environment. An AG Jeans factory in Los Angeles is even powered by solar panels, which means decreased energy usage. Find out more at agjeans.com. Happy Saturday. It's December 11th, 2021, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker. And I'm Michael Haney. And we welcome you to the show. Thank you for joining us. Michael, I have some urgent news. Did you hear about the Christmas tree shortage in New York City? Yes, I did. I heard it in passing from one of the guys selling a tree to someone justifying an extremely high price for his tree. Do you think that this is real or fake? Because I don't know about you, but I went to go get mine and the guy quoted me $300 for like a scraggly Charlie Brown Christmas tree that was barely five feet tall. Yeah. And last year they were saying the same thing. Like, well, it's a pandemic. A lot of trees didn't get cut. This year they're telling there's fires and then there's floods and then they had to cut stuff back and you're lucky to have a tree. So what did you end up settling on? Well, I ended up ordering one online, actually, from Flowerbox. It was like half of that. So, you know, a real bargain. But, you know, when you're getting swindled by New York City Christmas tree salespeople, you know the city is back in full force. We're just spending $250 on dinner at the Union Square Cafe and stress ordering the skims by Kim Kardashian. Like, the holiday season is here in full force. Yeah, I went through Midtown last week, the day after the tree lighting. It's like nothing had changed. Midtown, yeah, apparently people are back at work. Not us, but others. I've got something for you. You know what I saw today? Do you know what the word of the year is that they just announced it? Allyship. Great for you. Yes. I read the paper too. Yes. What do you think of this? What do I think of allyship? I mean, we've definitely heard about a lot of it this year. It makes sense. I, I don't know. What would the alternative be? Omicron? Like, that's not a word. I don't have an alternative for word of the year. I have an alternative for overused word of the year that I'm sick of. You want to know what it is? Please. You know, this, I can't stand when people deploy this word. And I see it used all over social media, usually when someone dies. And I saw it most recently when Virgil Abloh, the former fashion director at Louis Vuitton, who died 10, 12 days ago at age 41, tragically. And what I can't stand, and it's an adoption of a Britishism, which is, reminds me of like 20 years ago when people started to adopt at the end of the day here in America, which now is all pervasive. But it is a phrase when people say, so-and-so has died, dot, 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 I'm gutted. I hate the gutted. I hate it. It's so over dramatic, and I'm like, really, you're gutted. What does that mean? It's like you're like a fish, a sea bass, just pulled out of the ocean and absolutely gutted and thrown on a plate. I get it. If you're a guy who flew in the Battle of Britain and you lost three guys in your wing and you come back and you say, I'm just absolutely gutted. Fine, I get it. But like this sense of like some stranger you know died or something bad, I'm gutted, absolutely gutted. That along with rest in power. 
Got to get rid of that one too. Anyway. Wait, we're cheery today over here. We hate everyone. If you're... Morning on social media. Blah, 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 blah. No, thank you. Yeah, we've sent stories about this, like social media morning. And overused words. And overused words. Yeah, two serious topics in Airville. Well, on a happier note, we've got our holiday party coming up. What are you going to wear? Something sparkly and slinky and low cut. I used to have to do a couple of numbers at the piano, so I like to make it entertaining. The heels can't be too high because I often fall off of them, so... <laughs> I'll make sure to get some photos of that for our listeners. Speaking of holiday parties, can we just cut to a very funny, entertaining story that we have this week by Bruce Handy. It's called Dinner with a Side of Sinatra, or as I might call it, Chicken a la Frank Chasey. And it is about a motley crew of Frank Sinatra singers who meet once a year at Patsy's, the fabled New York Midtown restaurant that Sinatra, the chairman of the board himself, favored to have a little yearly gathering. And Bruce pulled up a chair and spent some time with these guys, right? Jealous. How did he get that invite? What did he have to do? I think have a pulse, but ends up hanging out with them on a rainy night where one of them makes the distinction that they're not Frank Sinatra impersonators. They're, in fact, Frank Sinatra tribute singers, or as they call themselves, tributeers. The difference is, as Stephen Maglio said, he says, when I come on stage, I sing with my own voice, though it sounds like his, but it's my inflections, my jokes. Other guys come out with that, with the hat, the jacket over the shoulder, the whole, hey, how did these people end up in my room kind of thing? They're trying to literally almost be a Madame Tussauds come to life. So it's a very fun look at one of those New York subcultures that makes the world go round. They say it's Frank Sinatra's world and we just live in it. And apparently it's still Sinatra's world and we're still living in it. You know what's weird is I've never seen one of these guys perform. Like what kind of jobs are they booking? What's the demand like during a pandemic for a Frank Sinatra impersonator? There might just be one at the holiday Christmas party for all you know. Honestly, we should book one. I'm going to write to Nathan about this. I mean, that is to me the most airmail thing ever. Mm-hmm. 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 That's a little secret between you and me and our many thousands of listeners. <laughs> I know where you want to go right now, though. You think I want to start with the Ghislaine Maxwell trial. You're wrong. What? How can I be wrong? After all wrong. these years of you and I together, how do I not know your every move? <laughs> I do have a hot take on the Ghislaine Maxwell trial. For the first week or so of this trial, there weren't a lot of revelations. There was a lot of horrific stuff that we saw from the accusers who took to the stand to testify against Maxwell, but there wasn't anything truly surprising until later this week. Uh, there were some bombshells. Uh, first of all, the trove of photos that were released showing very intimate moments between Maxwell and Epstein over the decades, really, um, including even a photo of the two of them. It looked like on the porch at Balmoral uh, to be determined if that's actually where it was. But I mean, that was pretty stunning. And then um, I think it just gives us a different picture of the relationship between the two. You know, she was sort of, she was positioned as his aide in some ways um, and his partner in crime, so to speak, or actually just literally his partner in crime. Um, but now it's a, a more complicated picture of the relationship between the two of them is emerging. And it's really crazy. It looks like they were in love. Uh, it looks like they were a couple in some ways, or at least that's what the images and some of the testimony has suggested. There was also another absolute bombshell that um, one of the victims who took to the stand said that she had seen a picture of a naked and pregnant Maxwell, which has raised a lot of questions about, you know, is there a love child in the mix or is there a child in the mix or is Galen Maxwell a mother? Who knows what the story is there, but... Uh, this trial has become much more interesting in the past few days, and I think we're just going to continue to watch it. But there's another trial unfolding, Michael, in your hometown that I find actually much more intriguing. I was like, she's either going to go here or she's got them both when the Daily Double. 
You do. The Jesse Smollett trial. Well, you're the Chicago man. Walk us through it. Walk us through it. I mean, talk about a, a dumpster fire. I'll do my best to walk us through. Y'all remember Jesse Smollett, the actor, what, about a year or so ago, he claimed that he had been accosted by two men in hoods who put a noose around his neck and beat him up and shouted MAGA slogans at him. But lo and behold, it turned out that he faked this attack. It seems like the American courtroom is really the center of American life these days. Like on the West Coast, you've got Elizabeth Holmes. In New York City, Ghislaine Maxwell. In the middle of the country, Jesse Smollett. Like this is where the big news is being generated. It's a distinctly American phenomenon. But you know what, Ashley? You know, another story, another courtroom drama that also involves sort of, what shall we say, misremembered facts and then facts that come to light years later is one that's captivating a lot of people, especially in the literary community. And that is what's happened around the author Alice Siebold and her best-selling account of her own rape, which was headed for the big screen as a movie treatment. But in the last couple of weeks, talk about dramatic. There have been revelations that have come to light that detail that in fact, the man who's been in prison who was convicted for that rape was not the man who did it. Yeah, this guy spent 16 years in jail after being wrongfully accused of a rape. He was just out of the Marines and home in his hometown of Syracuse, New York, visiting his father who was sick from cancer and he had had no criminal record or anything. And the next thing he knew, he had been hauled into the police station and questioned about this rape and he was convicted and sent to prison like unbelievably quickly. Anyway, the holes in the Alice Siebold story have come to light in the past few weeks. This gentleman has been exonerated. She has apologized to him. And now we take a look in this week's issue of Airmail. We have a writer named Howard Bloom. Howard's an American author and journalist. He was at one point a reporter for The Village Voice in The New York Times. Now he's a contributing editor at Vanity Fair and the author of several nonfiction books. And he is here to tell us about exactly how Siebold's scandal came to light. Welcome, Howard. We love how AG Jeans has reimagined its production practices to make them safer for workers and friendlier to the environment. With a vertical structure, AG has been a leader in progressing manufacturing processes towards a more sustainable future with early and significant investments in ozone technology, laser finishing, solar energy, and most recently, water recycling. Today, AG recycles over 100,000 gallons of water per day, with the goal to recycle over 50 million gallons per year. And now, the brand has used its new vapor wash technology in a stylish collection of jeans for men and women. In addition to a full range of silhouettes, there is also a unisex denim jacket, all made using this new wash technology that uses 65% less water and chemicals. Each vapor wash style has been updated with sustainable packaging, sporting a sustainable cellulose-based patch that is 100% vegetarian and biodegradable. Explore the entire collection at aggenes.com. So, Howard, thank you so much for bringing us this incredible story. Tell us a little bit how you first entered the universe of Alice Siebold and this colossal injustice. The whole story sort of came about because the executive producer working on the film, a man by the name of Timothy Mucante, began to have misgivings. He thought that possibly this was not true. So I was wondering who was this Timothy Mucante? He was an executive producer on a film that was being made. I'm full of, full of ambitions about working in Hollywood. How did he get this job? And it seemed he had a rather checkered past. Uh, according to the documents I was able to pull up with a relatively quick Google search, he'd spent a little over 10 years in federal prisons for three different 
fraud convictions. My favorite of the ones he was convicted for is he came up with a plan to barter over 1 million condoms as well as latex gloves that he would buy in Britain. He would then sell them or barter them to Russia, which didn't have the cash, but in return, they would give chickens. And these chickens he would sell to Saudi Arabia for a $3 million profit. Nukante, if you could just tell us, he's basically days away from starting to film and a little radar goes off in his head about it. It takes a con to know a con, right? Yes. It's a little, it's about a month out from the film. The film is going to be scheduled to shoot in the end of June, about June 21st. It's not till May that they finally get an actress who is allegedly going to play Alice Siebel, but she's attached. Things seem to be moving forward. Yukanti has put money into the production. And starting in about January, when he first comes on, January 2021, he reads Alice Siebel's book. And as he's reading it, he describes the scene to me. He's sitting in his home in Michigan. It's a cold night. A fire is burning in the hearth. Uh, he has the book on his Kindle. And he reads the rape, and it's a harrowing rape. And he has some kinship for that experience because he was attacked and brutally sexually assaulted in a halfway house for one of his convictions. And he also goes through a period, as mentioned in the legal papers, of drug addiction, alcohol abuse, and he's diagnosed as bipolar. So he quite dramatically understands a bit of what Alice Siebold has gone through. But then he starts reading about her the legal aspects of her case and about the lineup. And he sees that she makes originally a false identification and that and then she's convinced by the district attorney to move forward. And he thinks just doesn't seem right. As he puts it, it takes a con to know a con. And then finally, in March, he gets the actual script and he notices there's been another change that the director now wants. They're changing the assailant, the rapist in the Seabold story from a black man to a white man. And he wonders what's going on. Maybe this rape didn't even take place, or maybe they're trying to make it a contrivance. And so he's pushed to hire this private investigator to get to the bottom of things. He quickly finds out that Gregory uh, Madison of the book is actually called Anthony Broadwater. And in fact, a horrific rape did take place. So as we now know through all of the reporting that's come out, Anthony Broadwater was falsely imprisoned for 16 years, I believe it was, Howard, for the rape of Alice Siebold. Is that correct? He spent 16 and a half years in jail. As he puts it, he did the New York State prison tour. He went from one rough prison to another over the course of these 16 years in New York. But he was determined to survive. He was determined to do whatever it took to get through his prison term, except for one thing. He would never admit that he was guilty. He went before the parole board five separate times. And on each of these five occasions, Anthony refused to admit as they wanted to admit that he was guilty and therefore he was denied parole. And the only real evidence against him, right, was that Alice Siebold identified him in the lineup as her attacker? Well, there were two bits of evidence that the state used against him. The first was Alice Siebold's testimony, not in the lineup, but in the courtroom. She was asked, do you see the man who attacked you in Thorston Park, the park in Syracuse where the rape occurred? And she said, yes, he's sitting over there in a gray three-piece suit, and he was the only black man in the courtroom. The second bit of testimony was the forensic analyst 
went on the stand, the police forensic analysis, and said that they did a microscopic hair analysis of a pubic hair taken from the rape from Alice Siebold that matched one taken from Anthony Broadwater. And yet it turned out in 1990 and then again in 2015, the FBI and the Justice Department said that this sort of analysis is junk science. You can't tell anything from it. So these were the two foundations that sent this man in just a two-day trial. The entire trial testimony is just 214 pages. As one of the lawyers told me, he's seen motions that are longer than that. This trial, based on these two shaky foundations, sent a man to jail for 16 and a half years. And why did it take 20 years for this conviction to be overturned? Can you tell us a little bit about why he didn't come forward? It's a horror. He was trying all these years, Broadwater, to try to get someone to help him. When you spoke with Anthony Broadwater, how did you find him? How did he strike you personally? Anthony Broadwater is a man with a very calm demeanor. He's 61 years old now. He looks his age. He walks with a cane. He's broad-shouldered, but a bit hunched over. And he talks about, with a great deal of quiet passion, about his innocence, how he was, from the day one that he went into the courtroom as a 19-year-old teenager, just out of the Marines, he was released because he wanted to see his dying father from the Marines. He comes back to Syracuse, and then he's suddenly in a courtroom, and he thought the whole thing would go away, and yet it becomes a nightmare. When he's finally exonerated, I asked him, how did you feel? And the word he used was frightful. And I asked him, what do you mean by that? He said, well, he feared that if he walked outside the courtroom, a meteor would fall on him. He couldn't believe that anything good was actually going to happen in his life. And where does Alice Siebold live in all of this? Like, what has her response been to this overturned conviction? Well, Alice Siebold, I want to say this and make this my, my thoughts on this clear. She's another victim of all this. Uh, she went into the trial, a woman who had suffered a horrible attack. She was coerced by an assistant district attorney after she had misidentified someone in the lineup. She was told that this was a game that they play. These two ringers do this all the time in the lineups. Anthony Broadwater had never been in a lineup before in his life. She's a woman of Alice Siebold of great talent. I admire her books, her imagination. At the same time, she was in the courtroom. She identified the wrong man. As she writes in her book, she was going to murder him back. That was a word she uses for what had been done to her. And the problem is she murdered the wrong man. What strikes you the most as you look back on this piece of reporting that you've done? I'm struck by sort of the happenstance that Mucanti, for whatever reasons, he says something was nagging at him. It might be as nebulous as that. It might be more pragmatic. I'm not quite sure. But he was able to find the people who were able to move this forward. I mean, it was a matter of faith that he hires this one investigator. This one investigator was a former Syracuse cop. This investigator is able to quickly track down a cop who had handled the original rape case, who told him the thing never felt right. And then this investigator, Dan Myers, to his credit, goes out to see Broadwater. He tapes the entire conversation. And the hour and a half tape that Broadwater recorded is just a remarkable document. He tells his whole life story. And it's also just a matter of faith that Dave Hammond, this very committed 
army veteran lawyer was able to hear this tape and he was able then to work with Melissa Schwartz and they were able to actually right this wrong. So while everything went wrong was an appalling series of events in the first part of the story, it was a fortunate set of circumstances in the second part of the story to make it have, if it can ever be a happy ending, at least a resolution that's not entirely hellish. And Howard, what about the original perpetrator of the crime against Alice Siebold? Is there any optimism that that person may eventually be discovered and brought to justice? There's a detective in Syracuse now, a Syracuse cop who says he has a lead, but I don't know if that's just braggadocio or if he's really zeroing in on this man in Texas who he thinks might be the original rapist. Fascinating. Well, Howard, thank you so much for your thoughts on this and also for your incredible story and killer job of reporting. Once again, this is really such a treat to read and it gives such insight into a story that we already thought that we knew a lot about. So thank you so much. Thank you for talking with me and for your time and for your compliments. I appreciate it. Thanks so much, Howard. It's a riveting story that, again, as Ashley says, a testament to your reporting, which is but just like so many of the pieces of this, like it all turns on people having hunches and going in pursuit and just asking one more question. So we have part one this week and we'll have part two next week, right? Okay. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. All right. So, Michael, we have the woman, the myth, the legend, Sandra Bernhardt here. She's going to talk to us about what the holidays are like at her house and her fabulous new show at Joe's Pub, which is basically the only thing I think we need to get you through the holiday season. Welcome, Sandra. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. You are one of the funniest women alive fact. And I want to know how you found humor or how you used your humor to help you in these dark days of the pandemic. And how did that inform the work that you're doing now? Well, it was always like my way of dealing and coping with situations. I rarely felt awkward in situations, but I observed other people who seemed to be sort of nervous or shy. And I was always able to sort of like bring people, even when I was a little kid, I picked up on people's temperatures emotionally. So I got very good at like making people feel comfortable, almost like I was a hostess. So obviously during the pandemic, I mean, spending loads of time at home and having a partner like Sarah has been so great because that's our favorite thing to do is like, it's go off on these tangents about what's happening politically or culturally or watching a show or watching the news and disseminating it. And that's what keeps us sane is like having laughs and almost all of our friends share our sense of humor. That's a lifesaver for every situation. And I'm able to like, take, I think, the quotidian and really like turn it on its ear. And that's what I've gotten good at over the past five years, because the sense of like shocking people through comedy or being really sort of cutting edge, it's like there's so many people doing comedy now. It's impossible to shock anybody. I mean, when the world is so shocking from the insurrection to the last president, the, the table has been set with shock. So I've found different ways of approaching comedy. And for me, just talking about my life day to day and just going out in the world and the, and the people I observe has become my go-to. And I've managed to, I think, make humor out of that. And that's just how it has to be for me right now. You know, comedy used to be a safe space for people to air controversial opinions or things that other people might find offensive. And in the culture that we live in now, we've seen comedians, Chappelle at Netflix being the most recent example, come under fire for things that they've said on the stage. As a comedian and someone who's done this for a long time, what's your view on what's happening now? I think it's inescapable. I think social media and just everybody feeling like they can like weigh in 
I mean, when I started out, there were three television networks. And then suddenly, as culture evolved, we sort of went from like appointment viewing to like, oh, we can watch something whenever we want to. And not only that, but we can go on Twitter or Instagram and or Facebook and weigh in and critique performers and artists. So it's kind of like, where do you turn? And it's like, I don't even want to be controversial anymore. It's not worth it because you're speaking into the void and you're talking to people who are violent, angry, frustrated, ignorant, and who wants to deal with that? I know who my audience is. So I have my outlets that where I get honest. I think on stage when I perform, I'm my most honest or on my radio show that I do weekly on Sirius Sandy Land. I mean, people tune in to hear me, but I'm much more conscious and trepidatious about just saying things or blurting things out that 10 years ago, I wouldn't have thought twice about it. But now it's like, no, I don't want to be under fire from these creeps with their homemade guns. I think the genie's been let out of the bottle. The sides have been blown out of the containment walls and we're just lost. There's not enough sentient people in day-to-day life in society that can really break it down to look at and and depend on. And everybody's a critic. Everybody thinks they, they have something to add to the conversation, which just makes it a jumble of absolute dreck. Well, what I love about your show, Burn It Down, coming to the public theater, Joe's Pub, December 26th through the 31st, is that you create that sensation of the perfect dinner party right there on stage with everybody in the audience. So Michael and I will see you there. Great. Wait. Thank you. I'm thrilled. And we want to thank you. I have one last question if I can ask you. Sure. So Ashley, of course, recognizes you're one of the funniest women in New York City. I would just like to also speak for a moment, but you're also having watched your career, also not just one of the funniest, but also two of the other things, sexiest and most stylish. I mean, you were always this fashion icon. It's an overused word, but, and I'm just sort of like been thinking about it in anticipation of speaking with you today, which is like that whole era, as you referred to in in the Letterman, that late eighties, early nineties, that whole fashion period is almost back again. And I can just see almost like daily, there's a Bernhard look walking down the street at me right now from some 19 year old NYU kid. And I'm just wondering if your own daughter is even recognizing your fashion influence or how you feel about that. Well, she has her own style. She's a quite stylish gal, but I think she, you know, she doesn't really like pick through my stuff. She likes secondhand stuff and she makes it work, but she likes upscale secondhand stuff. And in terms of my own fashion sense right now, I feel like, I mean, I really feel like I've been out of the loop just because of the pandemic, but I feel like I'm getting back in. Mark Bauer is making a really fun dress for me for the show at Joe's Pub because I've done some shows already this year, but I kind of went a little more simple, like a sort of a pretty kind of prairie dress kind of vibe because I felt like I wanted to segue out of the pandemic. I didn't want to come on too strong, but I feel like now that I'm back at Joe's, people will want it and will expect it. So it'll have sparkle and glamour. So I'm ready for that again. I'm ready to be glamorous and dressed up and put the hair and the makeup back in order. (laughs) But thank you for that. That's very, very kind of you to refer to me as a fashion inspiration. I like that. All right, Michael, you better get that text to the cleaner. I think she's going to be watching to make sure that we are up to snuff. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you both. Give all of our love to your family. Happy holidays and happy 2022. That's fingers crossed. Big kiss. Thank you guys so much. Thank you. You're You're the best. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. 
On a book's note, if you're looking for something new to read over the holiday season, Joanne Kaufman reviews Face the Music, a memoir, which was written by Peter Duchin and Patricia Beard. Peter Duchin is known to any Manhattanite who's ever been to a party. He is a pianist and a society band leader, and he had a clogged lung in 2013, and he talks about his health crisis. This is his actually his second memoir. His first one was published in 1996, and it talks about his journey back from this, this health crisis and the fact that he's back at the Keys again. Again. And anyway, it's a really fun, not only a romp through one man's inspiring story, but also a good look at what makes New York City tick. On the subject of books, can I raise a potentially contentious... If you're going to talk smack on France and Michael, you might as well stop now. <laughs> How did you know this? Are you kidding me? How did you know? I just feel like if you're talking about books and contentious, you know that there's one sacred cow for me. Okay, go ahead. I'm listening. I'm about like a third of the way through this book, and I feel... It's set in my neck of the woods, 1970s suburban Chicago, where I grew up. And you know what it feels like? It feels like I felt many times in those winters in the 1970s growing up in Chicago. I feel like I am shoveling wet snow and it is a chore. It is a chore. I might be alone in this. I don't think I am. I'm not going to name names. I've casually explored this with a few other people. My last hot take of the day concerns... And just like that, the new take on Sex in the City, which debuted on HBO Max this week. Like many others, I was not terribly excited about this show. I really felt like the series had its best days far behind it. And I felt like every other attempt to capitalize on it, whether it was through a film or, or what have you, felt to me like a cheap imitation of the original. And I, I had very low expectations for this. And in fact, the first episode I found to be a huge bummer. Uh, and for many of the same reasons that I didn't like the films. but. Ultimately, it kind of won me over with a very dramatic turn of events uh, that happened at the end of the pilot. And those who have seen the show will know what I'm talking about. But all of a sudden, I felt like a show that had largely been about women talking and obsessing over their age and all of its implications became a show about something much more. So it remains to be seen if this is going to end up being great television, but I will keep tuning in. I've got some other junk to recommend. <laughs> junk. Okay. What junk do you want to recommend to the junketeers? Oh my gosh. Well, okay, Michael, you're going to have a view on this. Do you remember that movie Closer from 2004? Sure. Yeah. It's got the most incredible all-star cast, Natalie Portman, Julia Roberts, Jude Law, Be Still My Heart, and Clive Owen, Be Still My Heart-ish. So I had to rewatch it because it showed up on Netflix. It's such a terrible movie. I mean, incredibly enjoyable, but so bad. I'm like, how do you get all these actors in one room and write this awful script? Are you friends with the screenwriter? No. How do you get Natalie Portman to wear that bad pink wig? And I don't know. It was just like, that's also a Mike Nichols film, right? It can't be. I'm pretty sure it is. Oh my God. Michael, you're right. It is. I'm sorry. Okay. We love Mike Nichols here at Airmail. <laughs> Everyone makes mistakes. Go look up Catch-22. Everybody's allowed to have one total dud. No, it's not a total dud. It's kind of enjoyable in some ways. But I would blame Clive Owen, the world's most boring man. Is he? I don't know. He plays this kind of like sex-addicted dermatologist in Closer, which is definitely not a character that would be written into a movie in 2021, I'll tell you that. There are actually some incredibly good acting in this movie. Again, Mike Nichols, hat tip. Uh, but 
still, uh, it's pretty awful. And then because I was in a like 20-year-old Julia Robert film moment, I watched Stepmom. The Netflix algorithm really gets me. That one was slightly better. You couldn't have gone to Notting Hill? Well, I'm going to use Notting Hill next because, you know, I love Notting Hill. I'm going to use that as my transition to the Hugh Grant holiday of... Mm. Mm -hmm. Do you still cry in Love Actually when he opens the door and she's standing out there? No comment. (laughs) I do. (laughs) All right. What do you have to recommend for us, Michael? Please make it something slightly more highbrow. I didn't mean to make it highbrow, but I started to read this book and I'm recommending it based on what I've got so far. I was intrigued. It popped into the news a week or two ago. It's a French book that was translated and it was a huge hit during lockdown in France, won the Prix Goncourt. It's called The Anomaly, and it was written by a man named Hervé Letelier. And its premise is a little bit sci-fi. It's a little bit metaphysical, but basically it's a little bit like, could be Black Mirror, could be Twilight Zone, but it explores these questions about reality, fate, and free will. In it, a Air France flight departs from Paris to New York, and you then find out when it lands, they are the second flight to land, and there's a first flight with everyone on board that's landed earlier. And so it gets into these questions of identity and duality, and I'm not done with it yet, but I can see why everyone in France was hooked by it. Pretty cool premise for a story. Fascinating. All right. Well, on that note, we have our to-do list for the weekend. Thank you all for joining us. We are so grateful to have you here. Hashtag gratitude. Hashtag gutted. Hashtag rest in power. Hashtag rest in power to this episode of Morning Meeting. We will see you back here next week. Michael, will you please read us out? I'd be happy to. But first, the thanks to our sponsor, AG Jeans. Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alessandra Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Nathan King, Julie Vitale, and Chris Garrett. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. The theme music is The Cute Monster by the buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please do subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We'll be back next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure and subscribe at Apple Music or Spotify. But most of all, thank you for joining us.